Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and His Word, is 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1 to chapter 10, verse 19. You know, if you've been with us as we've journeyed through Samuel, that we are at the high point. And not just the high point of Samuel, brothers and sisters. Last week in chapter 8, we came to the line that I think in many ways represents the height of the Old Testament story of Israel. The point toward which Israelite history had been tending and the point from which that history will decline. And that line was verse 15 of chapter 8. Look there, it says, verse 15 of 2 Samuel 8, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Now David was far from perfect, as we've seen. But you cannot mistake the tone of 2 Samuel at this point. David is an anointed one in full. He'd gathered the tribes at Hebron. He'd established the ark in Jerusalem. He'd dealt with the enemies of the nation. He was just beginning to bring the good order of Israel to the wider world. And I, with the possible exception of the earliest years of Solomon, Israel never again attained the height represented by David's just rule over Israel, described in chapter 8. So, this is my starting point for our study of chapters 9 and 10 this morning. David's kingdom wasn't perfect. We've seen that. The Lord knows that. Even last week, Marian talked about how some of the tactics that David used in war in chapter 8 and what those were like and how as a result of such actions the Lord prevented David from building the temple as 1 Chronicles says. So we note those things but even as we note those dynamics we cannot miss that chapters 8 to 10 of 2 Samuel are meant to be exemplary. David is held up here as an example of a good king in these chapters. For all future kings of Israel, David is the standard by which they will be measured, and chapters 8 to 10 are the ones that give us the picture of that David. Yes, it's only a brief, shining moment. You know what's coming next week. But this moment... It would be enough to capture the imagination of Israel for a thousand years. To light a fire of messianic hope that would carry the people through national disaster, through exile, through conquest. As the prophets spoke of the hoped for arrival of a new David. Whose kingdom would last forever, as we've considered in recent weeks in 2 Samuel. But my question is, why is that? What about 
David and his kingdom in this moment of Israel's history is so compelling. Well, I'd like to suggest a rather straightforward answer to that. And it is that while David's kingdom was not perfect, it was in David's reign that something of the character of the kingdom of God was on display. David did justice and righteousness for all his people, chapter 8, verse 15 said. The kingdom of God is a kingdom of perfect justice and righteousness. David's kingdom was powerful. It prevailed over all opposition. So ultimately will the kingdom of God, Revelation tells us. In David's kingdom, the wealth of the nations was dedicated to the Lord, verse 11 of chapter 8 told us, just as all the earth one day will finally be returned to its owner and creator in the end. David's name had become great, verse 13 of chapter 8 told us, just as Jesus has been given a name above all names. And David administered an ordered kingdom as we saw at the end of chapter 8, just as everything will be in its right place in God's kingdom. That is the summative picture we have. When we come to the end of chapter 8 and move then into chapters 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel, and what I think we're meant to see most clearly in the two chapters before us this morning, is then something that maybe we would find surprising, at least initially, because if you were writing or editing Samuel, I don't know what you think would be the number one thing to emphasize after saying that David reigned over all Israel and administered justice and equity. But I could tell you what the narrator of Samuel thought was number one. Because what chapters 9 and 10 focus our attention on is the kindness of the king. And if, if I'm reading them rightly, what I think in the end we're meant to see is that it's not just the great King David's kindness that's in view here. It's the kindness of the Lord. Look at chapter 9 verse 1. The, the first thing I need to do, and it'll take me some while to do it, but the first thing I need to do here is demonstrate the connection that our narrator means for us to see between chapters 9 and 10. So chapter 9, verse 1, And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You then get that theme repeated explicitly in verse 7 of chapter 9, as David says to Mephibosheth, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. But if you read the chapter carefully, you discover there's something deeply significant about this kindness David will show Mephibosheth. You'd pick up on it in verse 3 of chapter 9. Verse 3 is again the words of David, this time to Ziba. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? 
So it's not hard in chapter 9 to see that the key word here is kindness. But perhaps lost on us in the English rendering is something of the richness of the meaning here. Even if you don't know Hebrew at all, you may well have heard, if you've been around sermons like this enough, you may well have heard of the word that stands behind the translation kindness in chapter 9 there. It is the Hebrew word chesed. And the point seems to be that David's chesed is linked to God's chesed. And dear friends, it would be hard to think of a more significant word to describe who the Lord is than chesed. Chesed is frequently used to describe Yahweh in the Old Testament, perhaps because it's how Yahweh describes himself. Did you know that? Exodus 34, verse 6. I need to turn there, but it's a seminal moment in this. Moses, Exodus 34, if you can place yourself in the sequence. Moses has just cut new stone tablets after the golden calf incident. And he goes up the mountain again, and the text says, Exodus 34, verse, six, the, or verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And this is verse 6, and this you even heard the psalm this morning referring to this moment. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. And some of you know this, but what the ESV translates there in Exodus 34 as steadfast love is chesed. In 2 Samuel 9, that same word is translated as kindness. Now, we could talk for a long time about what chesed means. Entire books are devoted to that subject. I'll say something about that. But the very first thing I think we need to appreciate is that when we're talking about the chesed of Yahweh, we are at bedrock in the Old Testament. Right? Everything depends on the Lord's chesed. We saw that even as recently in our study in 2 Samuel 7, verse 15, when the Lord tells David, his steadfast love, his chesed, will not depart from David's descendant forever. That's in fact the only reason that David's kingdom will continue. You probably know Psalm 136 famously, which for every 20, all 26 verses of Psalm 136 has the same refrain, the same one you'll hear. I'll just read verse 1 of Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times in that song. His chesed. So knowing that this is key somehow to chapters 9 and 10, I tried to read what I could about Chesed this week, which meant I had to be kind of selective because there's way more out there than I could handle in a week. But for starters, it's clear that there is a range of nuance in the meaning of the word, but what I thought was most interesting is that there's not clarity 
about what the essence of the term really is. And a common suggestion I came across as in my reading was that chesed means loyalty. And that specifically it entails loyalty to a covenant. <coughs> which makes lots of sense because chesed does often appear in covenant context. So one scholar puts it this way, chesed is the devoted love promised within a covenant. Love that is willing to commit itself to another by making its promise a matter of solemn record. Okay, that sounds right. That certainly is not wrong. Chesed indisputably does often operate within the context of covenant. And in fact, that's part of the background for us in 1 Samuel 9. David links the kindness he wants to show specifically to Jonathan, right? Nine, chapter 9, verse 1 again. Is there still anyone left for the house of Saul that I may show him kindness, chesed, for Jonathan's sake? Now, we're meant to remember something there. And that's in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And, and those of you who've been with us may remember this, at least the event of it. 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 and 15. Jonathan, you recall, Saul's son, had foreseen the day when David would reign securely over all Israel. And he made the following request in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Hear it? There's our term, show me chesed, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And then verse 16 of 1 Samuel 20 says, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. And this is exactly where we are now, right? The Lord has cut off virtually every one of the enemies of David. Now is the time for the chesed David had promised to be demonstrated. So clearly there is a connection to a covenant to which David will be loyal. But having said all of that, I'm not convinced chesed can be limited to the idea of loyalty. Loyalty undoubtedly is part of what chesed often means, but I think there's more to it in a fundamental sense. It is significant that when the Greek translators of the Hebrew Old Testament translated this word, chesed, they chose the Greek word for mercy. Eleos, meaning mercy. So without taking too much more time on this, though I could, let me just draw it to a point by quoting for you from one essay I read this week by a scholar named Francis Anderson. Listen to what Anderson says, quote, The Greek translation of the Hebrew text was still close to the mark when it used eleos, mercy, as its preferred translation of chesed, the modern preference for words like duty, obligation, loyalty, solidarity has the picture completely out of focus. Not wrong, mind you. 
but out of focus. Its worst effect, Anderson says, has been to obscure the primal, perpetual revelation of the Bible that God, in his ultimate and eternal being, is gracious and sensitive, abundant in chesed, loving kindness. The Old Testament is thus in perfect agreement with its New Testament consummation. God is love. Now I think Anderson has it right. It's just one guy I read, but I think he's got it. I think chesed usually refers to extraordinary acts of kindness or as Anderson puts it, to, quote, meeting an extreme need outside the normal run of perceived duty and arising from personal affection or pure goodness. Or in other words, chesed is mercy. And the fact that chesed is often linked to covenant commitments need not change that basic understanding. That's my view. So, if you're the narrator of 2 Samuel, what are you most burdened to demonstrate about David and his kingdom at this high point of Israel's history? Answer, that David's kingdom displayed the chesed that characterizes the kingdom of God. And so significant is this, in fact, that you do it in two ways in chapters 9 and 10. In chapter 9, David shows extraordinary kindness to one who could have been his enemy within Israel. And then in chapter 10, David shows kindness to one who could have been, and in fact it turns out was, his enemy from outside Israel specifically to Hanun, the new king of the Ammonites, a people who have a long history of hostility towards Israel. Now, I, I still have to draw this together for you because in chapter 10, it's not so easy to see that this is what's happening, is it? Because you say to me, the word kindness doesn't appear in the ESV in chapter 10. But that's a translational decision Chesed is there. In fact, it's right up front again, just as it was in chapter 9. Look at chapter 10. The text says, beginning in verse 1, After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Friends, the Hebrew behind deal loyally is chesed. And just so you believe me, in the ESV that I have up here on my stand, though I don't know if it's in yours, there is a footnote after the words deal loyally, where the editors are suggesting an alternate translation. By now you can tell the footnotes are pretty important. The editors are suggesting you could translate it kindly. So you could translate chapter 10 verse 2 as David saying, I will deal kindly with Hanun, 
the son of Nahaz. Then the connection's clear. Chapters 9 and 10 are about the great King David's expression of chesed. They're about the kindness of the king. But I'll say again, it's not just David's kindness that's in view here. I don't think, given this moment, it's the Lord's kindness. And one thing we learn in reading chapters 9 and 10 is that that kindness can be accepted or that kindness can be rejected. And at the end of chapter 9, Mephibosheth eats at David's table like one of the king's sons, verse 11 says. Whereas at the end of chapter 10, the Ammonites had fled, retreating into the city where in time they would be utterly destroyed, as we will learn in chapters 11 and 12. So now... In some way, both of these chapters need to be considered, but I, I know the time is running, and it's short already, so I'm going to say something about both of these chapters, but it's chapter 9 that's going to get most of my attention here. Then I'm just going to try to hint at the end at what I think is going on in chapter 10. Hang in there. We come to chapter 9, and we're not really expecting David's question here, I don't think. Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul, he asks. Now, if that was all the verse said, you might imagine one reason David asked that. Perhaps David is concerned that anyone left of the house of Saul could be a threat to him and his kingdom. Remember that in Saul's eyes, David had become his bitterest enemy. After Saul's death, his son Ishbosheth became David's rival, claimed to be king over all Israel. And there was this long period of war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Chapter 3, verse 1 tells us David's inquiry could have been motivated by an intention to eliminate any such threat. Couldn't it? I say that. Because, in fact, that is exactly what Mephibosheth seemed to think was going on. But it wasn't. We've already talked about the promise David made to Saul's son, Jonathan. You, you may recall that David, in fact, made a similar promise to Saul himself in 1 Samuel 24. But now, look again at what David says in verse 3, speaking here to Ziba. Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? That's in parallel. Jonathan had spoken of the kindness of the Lord in his request to David in 1 Samuel 20. That's what he asks of David if he were still alive when David became king, which he's not. David now intends to fulfill that request by showing the kindness of God. It fits. So this fellow Ziba tells David about Mephibosheth. Now, if you've been with us, you've actually heard about Mephibosheth already, though briefly, back in chapter 4 of 2 Samuel, in verse 4, where it reads, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, meaning the news that they had died, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So David sends for him. 
Verse 5, David brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, I can't resist this little comment. Lodabar, <laughs> in Hebrew, is a town name that means literally no pasture land. We're probably in the northern Transjordan. We're east of the Jordan River. In other words, we could probably assume from the way this is described that Mephibosheth had retreated for his own safety to a remote, desolate area away from David's immediate sphere of influence, a place no one would be particularly tempted to visit. So you can just imagine Mephibosheth's terror when suddenly an agent of King David arrives at the door in Lodabar. He thought his end had come. Look at verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now remember, he was lame in both feet. Brothers and sisters, falling on your face to pay homage is not simple to do in that condition. I don't think Mephibosheth figured he'd be getting up again. This was his grandfather's bitter enemy. He was five years old when his father and grandfather died. Presumably, Mephibosheth knew nothing about David's promise to his father. And then David says his name. And everything changes. Mephibosheth. Ah, I mean, don't you wish you could hear the tone of David's voice in that? There had to have been kindness in it, I think. And then here's this key moment, verse 6d, And Mephibosheth answered, Behold, I am your servant. Mephibosheth submitted to David as his king. And then we get these wonderful words, these deeply resonant words through Scripture. In verse 7, Do not fear, David says, for I will show you kindness. And the Hebrew there is more emphatic than that. I will surely show you chesed. For the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And you see again where Mephibosheth was coming from in how he responds, don't you? Verse 8, and he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? The king's kindness was utterly unexpected by Mephibosheth. You see, he'd done nothing to deserve it. And even more to the point, I think what David does here goes well beyond what David had promised to Jonathan. Jonathan said, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. All Jonathan asked David to commit to is not to kill him. And then Jonathan says, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. Or in other words, don't liquidate my descendants either, David. Right? David doesn't merely spare Mephibosheth's life. 
It's not just that David's being loyal to the covenant he'd made. Of course, he, he is being loyal. But it's more than that. He not only protects Mephibosheth's life, he restores his inheritance. He not only saves him from the shadow of death, he prepares a table for him. This is mercy. This is abundant kindness. This far surpasses anything Mephibosheth could have imagined. Brothers and sisters, I'm just suggesting that David's chesed here is but a faithful reflection of Yahweh's chesed. Four times in this chapter we get the language of Mephibosheth being granted to always eat at the king's table. You can't miss it. My, how that language resonates straight through the Bible. Doesn't it? I mean, you could probably think of a half dozen places right away you could go from here, but you know what my mind went to first. Psalm 23. The great Psalm of David. Did anybody else think about this? This is the Lord we're talking about here. Listen to Psalm 23, verse 5. So well known. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You get the sense of the abundance there. Then listen to verse 6 of Psalm 23. Surely, goodness and mercy. Well, do I even need to tell you? It's, it's chesed. That's the word. It's chesed, mercy. Surely goodness and mercy, abundant kindness. I mean, you're at the table of the Lord and your cup is overflowing and you never leave it. Right? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You shall eat at my table always, David says to the lame grandson of his greatest enemy. And look at, I know we cannot link everything in David's life to Jesus, but this one doesn't take too much effort to see, does it? You can't even have a passing familiarity with the Gospels and miss the fact that Jesus regularly invited both the worthy, quote-unquote, and the unworthy to sit at table with him. Why? Because he wants to draw us into divine fellowship. You see, Jesus is imaging what he knows is the nature of the eternal kingdom of God. He says it in Luke chapter 13, verse 29, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. Unless we miss the point, read again Mephibosheth's response here. Because my prayer is that this is our response. He, what is your servant, he says, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I can't say it. Eric did it better than me. Mephibosheth had it right, brothers and sisters. We're all dead dogs. But because of the mercy, the abundant kindness, the steadfast love of our king, 
we who have received him as king have received an amazing grace. You and I will always eat at his table. How does Titus uh, chapter 3 verse 4 say it? Titus 3 verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done to us and right by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. There it is again by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This is the kindness of the King. You shall eat at my table always. And now I'm really out of time, and I've said almost nothing about chapter 10, so I don't know. Uh, just a few comments. There's a lot in it. I've already pointed out the connection that's there with chapter 9. It's that it is the most important thing, how David wants here to show kindness again. Chesed. This time it's, it's to a foreign king. Nahash, king of the Ammonites, had died. And what you know about Nahash, if you do remember it, isn't good. Nahash was the one way back in 1 Samuel chapter 11 who besieged Jabesh Gilead. And who said he'd make a treaty with the men of Jabesh on the condition that he got to gouge out all their right eyes first and so bring disgrace on all Israel. Remember that sweet moment in 1 Samuel chapter 11. That's Nahash. And then the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul there. And you remember then Saul, in his perhaps one great moment of glory, rallied Israel and Nahash is defeated that's what we knew about Nahash, but evidently something happened later on that we don't know about because David says that Nahash at some later point showed him kindness. Now some scholars think that means Nahash provided some protection to David, maybe during the time that David had become Saul's hated enemy. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing, maybe. It's just a guess. Don't know. But now Nahash has died. And you might think that now it's David's opportunity. I mean, David, act now. You might be able to do away with this longtime enemy of Israel before this new king has a firm grip on the reins of power. David doesn't do that. The new king of the Ammonites is instead incredibly, if you're reading this in light of chapter 9... The new king of the Ammonites is now to experience the kindness of King David. So chapter 10 verse 2 says, David sent by his servants to console Hanun concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. And I know there's different ways of understanding what's going on here, but I just think the point's simple. The king over all Israel is showing the kindness of God to a foreign nation and historically a hostile one toward Israel. And that kindness would be rejected. But not before I think we see in David's actions in this chapter 
something that reminds us that David gets, he understands the purposes of God's kingdom were to go way beyond Israel. Through the seed of Abraham, blessing will come to the nations. We've talked about that a lot recently. I know that that ultimately refers to Jesus, as Paul says in Galatians 3. But you see, that's part of the point. Jesus is the new David, or the ultimate David, if you will. In Jesus, the kindness of the king is on offer to all people. The point of chapter 10 seems to me to be that it's possible to reject that kindness. Notice in verse 3 that it was the princes of the Ammonites, that probably the military commanders, who chose to interpret David's goodness here as duplicitous. There's nothing in the text that suggests David's actions were duplicitous. Quite the opposite, actually. The point is they were despising the kindness of God's king. I think it's interesting if you read verses 6 and following carefully, you find that the Ammonites knew the seriousness of what they'd done, but we're never told David's reaction to the Ammonites here. Instead, if you read the chapter, we just watch as the only course of action that the Ammonites even seem to consider is just to strengthen themselves against David. And they go and they hire all these Syrians and they amass their armies. And you read this again later, David doesn't make any moves against the Ammonites. In fact, I read Joab's mission here as a defensive one. I'd have to unpack that for you, which I cannot do right now, but... Joab says, may the Lord do what seems good to him in verse 12. And then verses 13 and 14 are strange. You read those verses, it's as though there was no battle. The Ammonites and the Syrians they'd hired just fled, is how it reads, at least on the surface of those verses. And Joab withdrew. I mean, the whole, thing, the whole thing just leaves me wondering, what if the Ammonites had welcomed David's kindness to begin with? What if, what if they'd sought David's forgiveness while there was time, instead of just amassing their army against him? Well, they didn't do that, of course, and I'm thinking that that's the point. You can reject the kindness of the king. This is not an Old Testament concept exclusively. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And just listen to what Paul says as I close now. This is Romans 2, verse 4. Paul asks, Do you presume on or you could translate it, show contempt for? Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Paul asks, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But he concludes, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
Dear friends, chapters 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel contain many puzzles for us as readers, but in the end, I think that the question they pose for us seems clear enough. How will we respond to the kindness of the King? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.